Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 53. Hello and welcome back, guys. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it could, could have been a better weekend. It's a little <laughs> under the weather. Just like uh, first labels and method calls, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess they're under the weather or they'll be back. I guess they're back now. Yeah. They used to be under the weather. So hopefully you'll take the similar trajectory to the, to first labels. Do you guys want to kind of explain what's going on with that? Um, Erica Sadoon had a post about some changes in Swift three to, uh, normalize the first, uh, parameter labels again, uh, and kind of that getting Objective-C and Swift working the same way, you know, and this is kind of all part of the the core library um, API normalization of uh, Swift 3.0. So she has a proposal to kind of continue pushing that, that envelope. But it sounds like the uh, uh, first parameter labels are coming back. Is that an officially accepted proposal? Or? No, I think it's still draft, or at least part of it is still, Erica's part, I think, is a draft, if I'm not mistaken. It looks like the proposal is an active review. She has a link in her blog post now. Maybe it's been updated since you read it. Uh, yeah, I read it when she was still kind of working through the, the, the proposal. Yeah, active review looks like it started the day after you sent us that link in chat, so... Looks like it is currently an accepted proposal, uh, at least the fact that it's a proposal and it's an active review. So just when you thought you had it figured out, you now have to uh, rework your code to, to match the standard. But we've got a little while, be a little while before that takes effect. I do think uh, it, it mentions um, that there will be migration support, so you won't have to rework your code. You just have to rework your rework your muscle memory. Yeah, I'll tell you, I I don't think I really have it figured out yet. I just type some stuff, and then if the little if it compiles, then <laughs> if it compiles, I ship it. Yeah. Well, then, yeah. Uh, I think between like autocomplete and you know, I, a lot of times it'll give you a warning that it gives you the fix it. Right. That's that's what I wait for. To, yeah. I just wait for the little circle with the square, with the white square in there. <laughs> yeah, I was always confused by all these underscores that were in method names and documentation. I'm like, I don't think I even realized exactly what it meant because I'm not doing Swift as much as you guys. But after reading through Erica's post, now I understand and now it's going away. Well, it's not going away, but it's not the default behavior anymore. So right. I can probably ignore it for the most part. So a lot of this is the, you know, methods in Objective-C used to, you know, that first parameter name was part of the method name or the function name. So like move to, and then you wouldn't have a parameter name. Now the the function would be move with the first parameter being to, you know, just as an example. Yeah, it'll be nice for it to be consistent. I don't know which side of the fence I fall under. Whether I want the first parameter gone or not, just being consistent would be nice. 
Yeah. So just to be clear, is the first parameter gone from the method name and now it's just a parameter or is it in both? It's gone from the method name. Okay. Currently. Was was that part of that's currently, but what is well, this? Well from new the objective so from the objective C side, it'll be in you know, those the old objective C methods right. would have that first parameter name as part of the function name. Now yeah. that moves into being the parameter name. And then I think Erica's proposal is to make that consistent throughout. Yeah, it's weird because constructors work this way now. So if you're if you're trying to figure out what way it's actually going to end up being, just look at your init methods. Which I would I have know. to have Swift init met methods to look at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I find it weird, like when you're looking at implementing NS coding and how it auto completes some of the stuff for you, and it gives you the AD coder as the parameter name to the init method it just looks looks awkward so maybe i come down on the side of not having first parameter labels but we'll see yeah i guess it's un it's an active review right now so we'll see what happens but makes you wonder if she's trying to get a job at apple on the swift team she's got so many of those proposals and things out there does she have commit oh. access yet <laughs> no, uh, or maybe she, she just talks about stuff. <laughs> uh, well, she's a she's a writer, and for the yeah. most part, I mean, she makes. I think her primary profession is to write books for O'Reilly, or you know, some publisher. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, she's had a lot of excellent books over the years on Objective C, and I assume she has some on Swift as well. So I, but, I don't think she's necessarily looking for a job at Apple. I think this is just kind of her job. And I don't believe she was one of the first group of people to get commit access. I don't remember her name listed. Hmm. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she does eventually. They probably should give her some kind of recognition at some point. She seems to have contributed a lot. Yeah. And when Apple yeah. does employ people who write lots of stuff mainly like oh, yeah, documentation yeah. type things so i mean it's yeah. it's not out of the question that she could go yeah. work for apple like doing the stuff she's doing now for for swift but it may just be like she's very interested and invested in the, the platform and has a lot to say and lots of ideas so it's cool either way mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah and i mean if you're not familiar with her blog i definitely recommend people go check it out she's got She's been writing about the platform for many years, and she has a lot of great material. She's had a lot of uh, useful utility libraries, and uh, I think some of her more popular books are the cookbooks for Objective-C, and I probably need to check out any, uh, any, see if she's written anything for Swift or published any, any books for Swift. Sadly, I th you know, you don't see as many books going through official uh, publishing groups as you used to. I, I think more books these days are self-published, so it's a little hard to to find good books out there. And there's some good self-published books, but 
you know you gotta you gotta find them can't just go to amazon well they're all blog posts these days yeah yeah, a lot of them are really long to read. Did you guys see uh, Renee Ritchie's blog post this week about, I guess he called it the App Store Disconnect? What no indie developer wants to hear about the App Store? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you fill us in? It was a long one. I'll try to summarize. Um, he starts off by kind of like saying, there's not really anything that Apple can do to make this theoretical App Store that let's indie developers thrive it's just not not going to happen there is an oversupply of developers and all these gigantic companies now are are in the app store you know so there's lots more competition than there used to be even just from like individual developers independent developers because when companies see that there's money somewhere they all go pile on you know um one analogy he used that I thought was kind of apt is that uh, was of wooden toys. Like if you remember years ago, more when you guys were little, there's, or maybe our parents, <laughs> maybe it's more likely, but like most of your toys were like these wooden handcrafted toys that you'd get at the, the local toy store. Uh, but now we have all these giant companies that mass produce cheap plastic toys and i don't know about your kids but like my house is just full with all these horrible crappy junk toys and they all have to make noise they all make yeah they all make noise they all those are the fart apps of the plastic toys (laughs) and i mean there's a bunch of crap out there too it's kind of like the app store it's hard to find good stuff uh kind of in this current age of toys they all will break after a couple weeks and I mean, it's all disposable stuff. Um, yeah, I think even when I was a kid, that was most of the toys, except we had cartoons yeah. to, to push them on us. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's been a, it's a shift from, I don't know, maybe it was the early, early 20th century where toys were more like that. And then he kind of goes through all of the things that the, the indie developers and some, de- like, general developers are saying these are the things that'll fix the app store stuff like you know shorter review times well if if no review times or shorter review times would fix the app store then why aren't we seeing this bastion of awesome apps in google play it's not (laughs) happening it's still still on ios despite the the difference in kind of review policies um upgrades probably are not gonna to help there's all kinds of complications that that go with those trying to think what else he mentioned there there's a bunch but yeah it's just like you know it's moving in this direction and there's nothing you can really do about it it's just how it's evolved it was it was kind of like the gold rush i mean we call it the gold rush when when the app store started and the gold rush ends it's not something that you can bring back and make you just plop out an app and boom, you get lots of money. It's not not yeah. anything that's going to come back. Yeah. Think apps don't go viral anymore either. It's it's like playing the lottery more than anything else. I mean, there's occasionally you'll get an app that gets featured, you know, on like TechCrunch or something like that, and they might see a huge upswing. Or, but you know, it is dominated by the big companies and the companies with large VC backing. And it's hard to compete with 
those companies because they have essentially bottomless pockets of cash. Yep. And uh, I mean, and the indies can't get the positioning from a marketing standpoint that those companies get. Yeah, I mean, Apple always is like, look how many apps we have. And if that's like your metric that you keep talking about, uh, then that that kind of furthers the the overcrowding of the app store. It's not it's not going down anytime soon. Maybe they could purge some old apps, but I don't know if that would help either. There's, you know, I think, you know, if you look at from the Mac apps side, you know, some of the things you mentioned about upgrade pricing and uh, free trials, you know, I think those are the kind of things that are forcing people out of the Mac app store because they can't offer those features. They can't have a sustainable revenue. Um, you know, you can have a, a fairly successful pro app on the Mac that is at an appropriate price point. But if you don't have free trials, it's hard to to win over new customers. And if you don't have upgrade pricing, it's hard to have a sustainable revenue stream. And I think he talks about this in an article, but like, I mean, that's a perfect example of, you know, the Macs are not very large opportunity for Apple to make more money. So there's not going to be lots of effort put into the Mac app stores. We can have seen, and probably they'll stay that way for the most part. But if you introduce like uh, paid upgrades within the app, you know, what happens if you do a paid upgrade and then, oh crap, there's some library we were using in your old app that needs to get updated. Like, how does that work? Do you have to like keep every version of every app for people to download? Like when they get a new Mac and want to download all their old apps. It's it's very, very messy uh, once you add some variables like like that in. And it's not just like we have a, like like it is if you're outside of the app store, you just have a file somewhere that's this version or that version. And you can update the files independently because they're just files. It's, yeah, it's, it's different kind of when you have this this app store directory of, of things and you're trying to manage them and keep them. There's a big difference from a customer expectation for a $2 app versus a $50 app as well. So, you know, for a $2 app, do customers really expect you to continue to support an old version? Or is it okay to say, you know, for $2, you upgrade to the next version? Or maybe maybe it's 50% if you had upgrade pricing. Yeah, and I guess there's there's implementations that wouldn't be too bad. Like you create a new SKU, which is what people are already doing, and you say, yeah. I mean, kind of the bundle approach. If you bought this app, then you can get this discount on that app. I mean, yeah. maybe it would work, but is that going to make um, in the app economy that exists now, if it wasn't before? Probably not. So yeah. is it worth going through all that trouble? Well, I think it's... I guess that's the the part of the point of his article. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've said it before, you know, the app store is like running any other business, running an an app business on the app store you know you've got to have an actual business model and a and a, understand your revenue stream and how you're going to acquire customers and mm-hmm. ma- maintain that revenue stream you know i i think there is some value to apple in attracting good developers to the platform and those aren't all 
you know, big companies and VC backed startups. It's, I think Apple is aware a lot of their success came from some of these indie de developers. Yeah, but they, I mean, they already have all the good developers. The good developers aren't on Android. I mean, there, there are some right. good developers on Android, but it's, they're all in the, the iOS ecosystem right now. Hasn't stopped them yet. yet. <laughs> yeah, from, from that perspective, competing, you know, comparing it to, to Google's platform, the Play Store. But I think at the same time, there's value in Apple attracting those developers. Uh, to their platform, not from the other platform, but you know, you know, right now you've got developers at who have a great idea that you know are crunching the numbers and saying it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. you know, there's no point in me building this great app that's going to change the world because I'm not going to make any money. But what can Apple do to it to attract those who do that number crunching? Or what? I mean, I don't know. I I don't think it's necessarily an issue of the app store i do think a lack of upgrade pricing is a challenge I, you know from a sustainability standpoint you know the fact that you have to play tricks like create a new SKU in order to get the concept of an upgrade price and maybe you have a discounted price for the first couple of weeks to try and give the sense of an upgrade price assuming your customers realize that you launched a new version of the app under a different SKU. Um, you know, I definitely think review times are bad for customers. You know, I, I think developers should be able to be responsive to the, to their customers. You know, Apple certainly, um, can expedite oh, yeah. their own apps when they have issues. So, um, you know, I, you know, I've said it before. I, th I think if you've set a track record of consistent deliverables that you're not gaming the system, then you know there should be an automated review process to make sure you didn't introduce malware or something. But I, I don't think you should have to wait in a queue for a week or two weeks just to get a, yeah. a minor update out or with some bug yeah, fixes. Yeah, I mean, I. I agree, and I think it'd be better for consumers and developers and Apple uh, if they were to come up with something. But there's lots of, like, what is that that thing that signifies this is a minor update? There's lots of weird edge cases, and yeah. again, the yeah, the point of of uh, Renee's article is that they did that. It's not going to make it sustainable. Um, no, no, it doesn't fix the discoverability or the app marketing problem but it does make yeah. your customer experience your customer support better that you can be responsive to issues that come up and you know apple will tell you just don't submit stuff that's broken but you know they do it every developer out there does it not because they don't do thorough job of testing it's just that there's lots of different variables and scenarios that you know, it's the nature of software. You just can't find every single issue in a controlled test environment. You know, sometimes it has mm -hmm. to get out in the wild to a large audience before you discover an issue. Um, There's a yeah, little bit of a paradox, too, because the easier Apple makes it for you to get a new app out there, the more apps that there's going to be out there, too. And so then you'll have more and more competition. Yeah, 
but you know i i think any first time app is going needs to go through a fairly thorough review process and is probably going to warrant a manual review to make sure it's not somebody trying to game the system or mislead or cheat somebody or you know any number of things that are called out in the review guidelines but if you've been delivering updates every six weeks for the past three years you know you that probably shouldn't trigger a manual review yeah i don't i don't know if it's uh i don't think that's necessarily about making it easier to get apps out there i think it's more about just being able to respond to customer or business needs quickly without having the stress of you know i, I mean every time you push that button there's a significant amount of stress that comes along with that of if i got this wrong it might be up to two weeks for me to be able to fix it and it's an could be embarrassing for the company or you know could impact your sales of your app and even with an expedited review it could take a couple of days or longer we've had plenty of stories from people who've even with an expedited review took you know four days or more yeah it's not a quick process yeah or it definitely can't be although uh someone in our slack uh posted uh, that the Mac review times were down to three days, which I thought was that's pretty practically, good. That's practically unheard of. Yeah. Um, and and uh, Brent Simmons, speaking of Mac, had this, this article kind of in response to Renee's article about being an indie in the Mac app store. thought it was kind of interesting. Did you guys read that one? Yeah, yeah. I tend to follow Brent, and he, uh, he always posts really good stuff. So are you guys ready to to switch to to Mac development now? Uh, I think he's got a fairly valid point. Of course, you know he's somewhat biased. He's been a primarily a Mac developer most of his career, and uh, he works at Omni Group, which they have iOS apps, but they've always dominated on the on the Mac, and they've got they've got the process figured out there. So you know, I th- I think they know how to to work the app store but uh you know there's probably some validity in that with mac apps you have less competition and you can charge more the there wasn't necessarily the race to the bottom on the mac app store or mac apps in general and there's definitely been an exodus from the mac app store i think most of the Mac apps I buy have shifted or at least offer an option to buy outside the Mac app store. Yeah, I feel like a a bigger part of, of that exodus is the uh, technical issue, issues like with sandboxing rather than uh, the lack of upgrade pricing and all that stuff. Um, I think that's it. Although there are, there are, for the people who were in there and left... You know, there's other issues that have kept, you know, your Microsofts and your Adobe's out. Um, just not wanting to give Apple a cut at all, but... Well, Microsoft sells uh, the Office 360, at least for they iOS. They do an app purchase for that? Well, yeah, yeah they do an in-app purchase, um, at least for iOS. I don't know about Mac. I wonder if... I, I really doubt they're in the Mac App Store. Let's see here. Can I buy Word? No, but there's lots of 
crappy apps <laughs> out there that try to use Word's logo to sell you some like Word viewer or something. So they don't have a thing they can edit Word documents. So they don't have a choice on iOS. I, I guess given a choice, you know, why would yeah. you sell through the Mac App Store? Yeah. And you know, it's you might get a little bit more discoverability or at least a certain audience. But I think the fact that there's just not that much variety, you know, people might not look out there for apps as much as they used to. Games especially, you know, that's the Mac App Store really yeah. is not not good for games. Oh, you can that always is, find a better deal. Sure. <laughs> Steam always has a better deal. Yeah. Yeah, someone who makes games, the Mac App Store is definitely not the place you want to be. <laughs> well, um, even from a consumer standpoint, it's like... you. They just never attracted that many games, and you know EA's on there, but outside of that, there's not a whole lot. But Brent's Brent's article is more less less about uh, the Mac App Store being horrible. It was more that building a Mac app, especially in certain uh, certain categories, is is probably a, a better way to to create a sustainable business than the iOS App Store and. He says, you know, it was never super easy on the iOS app store and it's gotten harder. Um, but uh, I mean, I think that's he does have a good point. Uh, there's you can still sell Mac apps for more than than iOS apps. Yeah. Paying thirty dollars for a Mac app is not doesn't sound that outrageous. Yeah, it's it seems like as the years go on, it's sounding a little more outrageous, but compared to ios it's like oh yeah i could do 30 dollars. it's bigger it's on my main screen and i use with this <laughs> dedicated box that has this thing hooked up to it and yeah yeah and you buy it and then you say i wish there was a ios app to go with this yeah yeah <laughs> and and that's you know potentially motivation for them to build an ios app you know if it helps grow that that customer base more as an yeah, add-on but- than as a primary business channel yeah but i mean his he points out that there's lots of you know mac developers who have been independent mac developers for over a decade some with yeah. you know with growing companies like agile bits or omni or you know and so they've a lot of them have branched out into to mobile as well yeah but uh, you know i i don't know how successful they've been on mobile like omni probably does reasonably well but you know OmniFocus most of their apps are are in the 40 plus range 30 20 mm-hmm. you know I, I don't think they have anything under $20 so like I want to say I read something recently that said that while they're doing better and better on iOS the Mac is still where most of their revenue comes oh, from sure. and it, it makes sense well, the price points about twice, but yeah, <laughs> Omni still did not race to the bottom. They charge what they feel is appropriate. You know, it's comparable to a desktop app price point. And these aren't trivial apps by any means. You know, they put a lot of engineering power and and time and money into building fairly polished applications for iOS. So, you know, while everybody else felt like they had to race to the bottom, they continue to charge, you know, fairly reasonable 
price points for their apps. Reasonable from the sense of for the amount of money they spent to build it, the price matches that and the quality they put into it. Well, here's the question I have. Would you consider OmniFocus an indie group? Because I imagine they have several developers. Oh, yeah. Uh-oh, are we going to start the, the controversy of what designates an indie developer? <laughs> They've, I'm, sh- well, I'm sure they started like a lot of indie developers. They've grown into something more than, than an indie dev shop by far. I mean, they have support people, dedicated support people. They've got you know, designers. They've got professional testers on staff. It's, yeah, not your typical indie shop by any means. And I wouldn't classify them as indie. But I think they're what a lot of indie developers would want to grow into unless they're looking for a lifestyle job where they work when they want to work and not, they don't want any employees. I thought indie was just an abbreviation for independent. Is it not? It is. And, we, you know, we probably shouldn't <laughs> get into the... Uh, the, the a religious war of sorts. That's when your podcast dies is when you have that argument, yeah. right? <laughs> the next, our next podcast to come out will be after the uh, Apple event. So do you guys want to talk about that and give a, give some predictions or I think, what are your thoughts? I think based on the invitation, there's clearly going to be a focus on the watch which I actually find kind of surprising because that's probably still like the smallest part of their their business. You know, it might be, I don't know how it compares to the Apple TV, but... Yeah, you're probably right. I, I can definitely see that. I'm kind of surprised that they would make that the focus of the media event, but I'm sure they're going to talk about a lot more. Maybe not the things I want them to talk about, but what do you guys think? It would be nice to see some sales numbers on the Apple TV. Not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your prediction or you just want to see it? I I would like to see it. I'd like to know just how well it's doing. Really, okay. I don't know if I know anybody that's got one besides developer types. That and, you know, when you look at people wearing the watch, there's not that many people that actually wear the Apple watch. Unless they're developer types again. You see them occasionally. Yeah, I think it's still a niche. You know, I don't know if it's the price or, you know, my wife was looking at one and she was debating whether it was too bulky, too heavy. You know, she was somewhat tempted to get one. But I think she decided to wait until it's a little bit thinner, lighter. Which, you know, I don't think we're going to see a new watch shown at the event. But, I don't know, what do you guys think? Are they ready to preview the, well, the next watch? If it's going to be focused on Apple Watch... It's going to be bands. I mean, it's all about the bands. <laughs> that's what the loop thing's yeah. talking about? It's just the bands? Yeah, the, the black, loops. black melanese loop. Melanese. <laughs> yeah, which you can already buy as a knockoff. On Amazon, for pretty cheap. Fraction of the price, yeah. Yeah. You don't think it's going to be uh, the iPod Touch style loop on the, the oh. iPhone, whatever, SE or whatever it's called? 
the four inch, <laughs> the return of the four inch iPhone. Well, it could Maybe be. it's both. I don't know. Well, Let us loop you in. Think, what is that? I think most people are expecting the iPhone SE, the four inch phone to be presented probably in various colors. Do you think there's going to be some improved uh, security stuff on this new phone? <laughs> I think that seems like a, a good Improved over good the chance. 5C, probably. If it's using any modern chip, it will be compared to the 5C, because I don't think the 5C had the secure enclave, right? No, it wouldn't right. have. That was introduced with Apple Pay, right? Maybe that's what SE is for. Yeah. It's the iPhone with a secure, secure enclave. That's what it stands for. <laughs> secure edition. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's like the version two of the secure enclave. Maybe they've put some of this uh, stuff that's in software now, like the the passcode formatting and all that junk, into like onto the silicon somehow, so that it cannot be worked around with software or something. I'm sure the designs yeah. for that device were pretty much nailed down before the, this whole debate on cracking the phone. Yeah, it's it's probably been out there for quite some time. But I do agree that it probably will have the secure enclave on it. You know, I think they're going to continue to push Apple Pay. I think the biggest question is, is will it have 3D touch? And most people seem to think no. What do you guys think? That's the word. I guess to keep the cost down, if they wanted to keep the cost down, that would be a thing to exclude. But then again, if you're trying to push that as a new means of interacting with a phone, it would be a good thing to have it. But 3D Touch doesn't make Apple as much money as Apple Pay does. <laughs> True. They don't get a cut <laughs> so, of all the all, all those the transactions. Who buy crap on Amazon when they uh, use 3D Touch to view an item, but they do get a touch of every time you use or a cut of every time you use Apple Pay. So. Yeah, and it's a fairly competitive market right now, and um, you've got a lot of alternatives being pushed heavily by big retail consortiums and various other outlets. You know, got Samsung Pay. Google Pay, um, or whatever it's called now. I think Android, Android Pay now is the current I think iteration. MasterCard's been pushing their payment solution recently. That is an industry I'd like to see disrupted, <laughs> but it's not <laughs> happening. Well, that's kind of what I currency think... was supposed to be, was to disrupt yeah. the credit cards. Basically... You know, retailers love currency because it lets them bypass the credit card fees, which are significant. So they're heavily yeah, motivated to see currency succeed, but... The convenience was just crap, so right. it died. <laughs> right. Well, I think they're still officially pushing it, but I don't think it's going to roll out in in any big way. Now, what if what if Apple were to open up access to the NFC chip or then something like currency could actually be reasonably decent experience. But I think... Why didn't I, they do that on Android? Hmm? They could have done that on Android, couldn't they have? Yeah. I mean, that's why you have Samsung Pay and Android Pay and 
Yeah, they could have, but because Apple kept dragging their feet about adding NFC in the first place, and then finally they add it, but they don't give developers or third parties access to it, you know, has kept groups like Currency from really having any success. And I think that's probably why we won't see developer access to the NFC chip anytime soon. Yeah, probably not. But, I, you know, a solution that only only satisfies half the market is not really a, a viable solution because then you have to train cashiers okay if they're on this type of phone you do it this way if they're on you know it's makes that experience even harder to roll out it'll all shake out eventually yeah sorry i was starting to slip into my wwdc predictions there <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to see the latest version of iOS 9.3 and 9.2 for tvOS. Um, mm-hmm. The iPad Pro Mini, <laughs> we're, we're going to see. Any predictions about that? or is, is the mini all the mega. rumors? <laughs> yeah, whatever yeah. you want to. Air 3 or whatever. Air Pro 3. It'd be funny if... Uh, if we got if we all as a community like picked one of those goofy nicknames to to call it to kind of be the cuz you can't just call it the iPad Pro or Pro I mean Mini. I, that's probably what Apple will. No. I mean, iPad Pro Mini would be fine, but it's a goofy name. That's that's what I want. I want a goofy name to to take over. <laughs> kind of like people call iPod touches i touches. No one calls them iPod touch. Yeah. It's the Mini Mega. I like Mini Mega. I could go for that. I think that was a Jimmy Kimmel joke when the Mini came out. The original Mini. Oh, there is lots of jokes. Conan had one, too. Okay. It could have been him. It was one of those late night shows. Yeah. They had all the different ones, including like a 47-inch iPad that was coming out. And like they showed you the roadmap or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) The Mega Mega. Yeah. And then, oh yeah, was it the mini mega that was the exact same size as the original iPad? Is that I where think so. That came from? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that sounds about right. No more, no more predictions? Uh, I would love to see them refresh their computer lineup, but I don't think they're going to talk about that at this event, unfortunately. Yeah, no. we'll probably, probably have to wait until June-ish, maybe. I hope not. I'm hoping for a new one in June. I, if not, I'm, it's not coming in in March. I'm sure of that. But I don't. I don't think there's anything they're really waiting for. I mean, the newer Skylake chips are out, as far as I know. I think they were supposed to be out in January. I don't believe they got delayed. So I I really don't know why they couldn't come out in March. They're not going to get their own event, though. No. And there's not going to be another big event in between now well, and June. I can't imagine. I mean, if it's just a matter of right. bumping the processor, you know, they don't really need their own event. If, if it's a complete redesign, then it's going to be talked about in G- June or some sort of media event. But if yeah. it's the iMac just getting a new processor or the existing MacBook Pro or the MacBook, um, those can just be bumped and not have an event just a press release 
Okay, I can be on board with that. So if we're waiting for a design refresh, it's going to be June. Otherwise, they could just do a spec bump at any time. So you could expect the MacBook Pro to come in multiple colors in June. In that case, <laughs> it's probably a redesign and would probably have to wait till June. But the MacBook could probably get a bump. Uh, the iMac, unless they've got a redesign coming, which yeah, maybe just that's did some stuff. Cards, I don't know. It's so thin. What else are they gonna do with that thing? <laughs> gotta go edge. You know, get rid of the bezel, edge to edge. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they they just did some stuff with the the twenty seven inch iMac. Yeah. So the iMac's probably been updated most recently. I think the the Mac Pro is isn't that coming up on three years now? They had a minor bump in June of. 15, I think it was, or 14. No, it couldn't have been 14. It was probably 15. Like, you know, that the price point on that thing alone, you know, you, you would hope they'd keep it up to date. You can go over $4,000 on on one of those. Well, it's not like you can up, upgrade it, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually, so speaking of upgrades, if you've got a 2013 MacBook Pro, uh, OWC finally released a upgradable ssd for it hmm. it's not cheap but if you're hurting i guess you could a retina macbook pro yeah so they had a they had an ssd upgrade for the 2012 for a long time and they were it took a long a very long time to get to market with the 2013 version because it's, a so different it's not soldered on it's some chip that you can just shove in there yeah it's a basically a little card that's gonna held on okay. by a screw but yeah the RAM, is, ram is definitely soldered yeah okay it's not gotcha yeah i've bought those little i don't even know what the standard for that's called but like uh you can buy enclosures for those little solid state discs too yeah and, and this may be a slightly different format or something as well like but some pci express thing i don't know mini pci express i don't know what it's called but those are those are nice little hard drives. If you just do, if you get those and get a little like ten dollar enclosure, that's what my Mac, my uh, my family iMac is brewing off of right now. So, <laughs> but I think that's about all the time we have left for this week. So we'll talk to you guys after the Apple event, probably. But in the meantime, why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. And I'm at Sam Quarter on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo. Uh, you can find podcasts, as always, at Shared Inst. If you want to find show notes, check out sharedinstance.com. Join us on the Slack, where we can talk about fun stuff. You can get an invite by going to chat.sharedinstance.com. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye.